All right, before we jump into our passage of Scripture this morning, back into— oh, ooh, I'm not going to give it away. Back into the Scripture this morning, we're going to talk to the kids. First question, kids, get ready for the passage, the sermon. What passage are we in? That's a hard one. What book of the Bible are we in right now, kids? Paul, you can just yell it out. Go for it. Job. And is Job in the Old Testament or New Testament? Ooh, so close. What? Old Testament. Awesome. Yes. Okay, so we're in the Old, and that's important. We're in the Old Testament. We're building up to when Jesus comes in the New Testament. So very, very good. Okay, uh, here's what we're going to be talking about today. Years ago, Peyton, one of my kids, one of my boys, uh, he went to his grandparents' house because they had just gotten a new cat. Now, his grandparents also have dogs. Uh, and the dogs, one of the dogs doesn't care about the new cat, could care less. Uh, the other dog could really care about the cat and really hates the cat. That dog does not like the cat, and so the cat has to stay in the laundry room to protect the cat. Otherwise, that other dog is going to go after it. We're trying to work things out between the dog and the cat. But Peyton goes over there wanting to play with the cat, and we warn the kids every time we go over there, if you're going to play with the cat, make sure you go to the laundry room and close the door behind you. Otherwise, the dog, who you know hates the cat, is going to get the cat. And so Peyton, on one visit, uh, he's, he's only seven years old at this point, so he's still young. Super excited, goes in, and forgets to close the door behind him. And he's got the cat, he's holding the cat, and all of a sudden, the dog who hates the cat runs into the laundry room and starts going nuts. Oh, 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 trying to get at the cat. And Peyton, Peyton is holding the cat up, and the cat is freaking out because the cat thinks the whole world is at war with her. And so she's, you know, the dog and Peyton's like holding on. She's like, you know, and, and starts scratching and, and wailing and lashing out at Peyton. Peyton takes a scratch from the cat, but Peyton refuses to let the cat go because if he does, that cat is dead meat. Okay. And the cat was fine. Peyton saved the cat. Uh, that is what is going on in Job today. Job, here is Job, and he, remember, he's really hurting. He is really, really suffering. And he thinks the whole world is at war with him, even God himself. And so he is kicking, and he's screaming, and, and he's lashing out at God. He's screaming and yelling at God. And it's God who is actually saving Job. That's the crazy thing. Job just doesn't get it. Job's like that cat. And that can happen, kids, that can happen to us too. So you got to think about like when we're, when we're having a bad day, when we're having a hard time, you know, when we're, when we're suffering, things aren't going right, we, we can think that God is mad at us or that he's really, really disappointed in us or that he's, he's punishing us or that he's left us. And we can get really mad at God, but the Bible tells us that actually, even in, that, even in those hard times that we have, God is actually saving us in those times. That he actually is doing something in your life that is loving towards you, even if we can't understand it, even if we act like that cat attacking Peyton who is saving the cat's life. How, here's a question, kids. How do we know, 
how do we know our suffering? Because that's a big thing. How do we know our suffering does not mean God doesn't love us? How do we know that? How can you know that for sure? What is it that you just have to believe? This is where, you know, you know where we always go. What's, the, what's always a good answer to a question? How do you know you're suffering? How do you know your hard times doesn't mean that God's left you? Jesus. Because Jesus did what for you? You know, I know you know this. What did Jesus do for you? He saved you by living for you, dying for you, for your sins, which means God is never going to punish you for your sins. That is not, that's not ever what your suffering is about because Jesus took all that punishment already for you on the cross. So how does, now here's a really other, last question, here's a really crazy one. How does our suffering actually bring us closer to God? This is also what Job is about today. How does our suffering, can you think of this? How does our suffering bring us closer to God? This is like big stuff that you kids can get. How about this? I'll give you a hint. When you get hurt, scrape your knee, break your arm. When you get hurt, who do you run to? A teacher? Good. Who else do you run to? If you're at home and you get hurt, you run to your parents. You run to your mom. You run to your dad. Help. You run to somebody who can help you. That's what our suffering does. That's how our suffering brings us closer to God. Because when we get in a hard time, when we get hurt, we can always and we should always run to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can really, really save us. Who has saved us. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's what we want Job to learn today. We want him to believe today. Because the book of Job, everyone, the book of Job is about, in a word, we're saying it's about conflict. That Satan shows up in heaven and he challenges God that since the fall, all of mankind, the whole world, it belongs to him. And God challenges Satan's challenge. Look at Job. Have you seen my servant Job? My grace is at work. He belongs to me. And Satan challenges God's challenge that God's promise of grace is a lie. It's empty. It's false. Job doesn't really believe He's a liar, which means God's a liar. Grace is fake. So God says, challenge accepted. And we get this conflict of champions. That's what the book of Job is about. Satan has, at this point, he's relentlessly attacked Job. We've seen Job descend now into despair. He, he's done debating his, com his so-called comforters. He has sung, we saw last time, he has sung about wisdom that the fear of the Lord is wisdom and turning away from evil is understanding. So here he is, he's seeing things and then he descends back into this pit of despair. He's longing for his former greatness. He's lamenting his present humiliation. He's constantly protesting his innocence and now he is demanding justice from God. And now we have another comforter who comes, Elihu. Please stand for the reading of God's word. These are selections from Job chapter 31 to Job chapter 37. It begins with Job. Here's Job talking. This is, these are the last of his words. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. 
like a prince I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breed their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So these three men, those comforters, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. These are now selections of Elihu's counsel to Job. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen in his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life, of a truth God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who is prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. At this also, my heart trembles. It leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. That was intentional? Yes, that was intentional. Okay, Job, here we go. Job has descended into challenging God. Job says that God has forsaken his role as the protector of his faithful people, that, that God has inexplicably turned enemy against his obedient servant, Job. And what's, what's amazing about Job's challenge to God is Job's incredible insight into God's law. I mean, this is like foreshadowing Sermon on the Mount type stuff with Jesus of, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I say, not just do not murder, but if you have, if you're angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. You know, don't just 
It says, do not commit adultery. Well, I'm telling you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Job, Job gets that. He, he, we, didn't, we didn't go through that, but here's Job recounting what the law is really all about. Now, what's even more astonishing is the sad and gross irony of where Job's prof- profound insight leads him. That is, he, he, he has remarkable penetration into God's moral requirements, and yet his challenge to God, it exposes the, the equally remarkable depth of his own self-righteousness. And then at the end, if you picked up on this, he compares himself to Adam in the garden, and he denies any similarity to Adam who tried to hide his sin. And Job says, his life is an open book. He's not hiding anything. He'd open himself up to all of society for scrutiny. He'd open himself up, not scared at all. He'd open himself up to God for scrutiny. So unlike Adam, Job wants to confront God. And with, one commentator put it, with consummate arrogance, he wants to strut up to God like a prince with his challenge. And then, and then the author lets us know that there's someone else sitting there. And this is, you know, where did Elihu go? This is genius. This is genius on the part of the author introducing this Elihu fellow with the other three. If he had introduced him earlier with the other three, it w- would have been this clumsy spoiler that there was still debate to come. You would have been, wait, 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 there's one more. No. Now we, you know, it's like the curtain is drawn back. The light comes up. We see there's one more there. And so uh, the dramatic turn. Some people argue that Elihu is just like the other three comforters. Uh, that's not right. False, wrong. Elihu speaks for God. One reason you know Elihu is speaking for God is that what Elihu says here in chapters 32 through 37, God is about to show up and say himself. And there's a lot of that stuff that we're actually not highlighting because God says it, and that's what we're going to highlight next time. Another reason you know Elihu speaks for God is when God shows up, he condemns the counsel of the other three comforters, not Elihu's. Another reason you know Elihu speaks for God uh, is based on the structure of the poem itself, which, which is hard for, for us to see, you know, going bit by bit. But we, remember we said Job 28 is the hinge of the book? Okay, now Elihu shows up. What came right before Job's song about wisdom were the three comforters. Now after this hinge, Job 28, this song about wisdom, Elihu comes as a foil. He's an opposite of what has just come before. The not so wise, the foolish comforters. Here's how you also know. We said uh, the way this book unfolds is a series of conflicts, that the major conflict is between God and Satan, the two champions, and they each have their own champions. And so Satan has fought as his own champion. Satan has had other champions fight for him. Uh, the Job's wife, the three comforters. God's champion has been Job. And we said Job 28 is the hinge of the book, and now we make a big turn because now God is against Job. 
Now, instead of Job being on God's side, God has to challenge Job. And God brings another champion, Elihu, to fight his other champion, Job. It's a collision of champions. And it's ultimately about the conflict between God and Satan. You gotta think of it like this. Y'all remember, uh, it, was, it, was a long, it was a long time ago. It was in a galaxy far, it was far away. Uh, Civil War, the Rebellion, Hidden Bases, Galactic Empire, the Death Star, Princess Leia, nailed it, Star Wars. Emperor Palpatine, Luke Skywalker, evil Lord Darth Vader, the Force, light side, dark side. Okay, Elihu, he has got to turn Job back like Luke Skywalker had to turn Darth Vader back, back to Anakin Skywalker so that Anakin could fulfill the prophecy and defeat the Emperor Palpatine, which the later movies totally ruined. Um, Elihu, he's been there listening sitting there, holding his tongue out of deference, out of respect for his elders. And he can't, and now he can't take it anymore. And he rightly claims that wisdom, listen, in spite of age, old, young age, wisdom is the gift of God. And so he goes after all of them. He goes after the three comforters. He goes after Job. And Elihu challenges Job's challenge, saying, Job, you are in great need. You're in great need of repentance. You've got to turn back. Usually, we've got to say a word on repentance because, and we've said this before, maybe a couple times, we're going to keep saying this. Usually when we think of repentance, we think of turning from a bad version of ourselves to a good version of ourselves, or at least uh, turning from a bad version of ourselves to a better version of ourselves. So you hear someone say, repent, and they either mean or you are hearing turn from your life of sin to a life of holiness. It's like, stop drinking so much. Uh, stop uh, swearing. Stop abusing sex. Uh, stop hating others. Stop living so selfishly. Stop being so judgmental. Stop being so self-absorbed. Stop it. And clean up your life. Repent and go the opposite way. Hey, that's not repentance. That's not, that's not all of repentance. And because that's not all of repentance, that's not repentance. Repent most basically means to turn. Okay, but, but that doesn't tell you everything. That doesn't tell you so much. The question is, turn from what and turn to what? Repentance is turning away from your sin, yes, and turning back to God. And so, yeah, that might look like turning from a wild and crazy life, from sexual promiscuity, turning from anger, from a life of shallow, nothing but shallow relationships, mostly revolving around yourself and gossip, turning from idolizing your job, from idolizing your marriage, from idolizing your kids, from idolizing your wealth, and turning back to God. And this is important. Here's the so what. If Elihu is telling Job to repent, then repentance is not a one and done thing. As in, I repented, I gave my life to Jesus way back when. I'm good, great, great, and keep turning. Repentance, is, it's about today. It's a daily thing. 
Martin Luther, the guy who kicked off the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century, he's the guy who nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg, the big church. This is where you posted anything you wanted people to see. Did it on uh, Hallow's Eve because the next day was the day they were going to celebrate a big holiday. That's where Halloween comes from. Um, The first of the 95 theses. He's got all these things he wants to say, and the very, very first thing he's got to get out there is this. His first thesis says, thesis says, when our Lord and Master said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance, of constantly turning from a life of sin and turning to Jesus. Elihu is sent to Job with a message of repentance. Turn, brother, turn from your challenge and your rebellion against God back to trusting and loving God. This younger man, Elihu, he is just as unaware as Job is, as all the others are, as to what's going on behind the scenes in heaven. Elihu doesn't know. So his counsel to Job is not giving the whole picture. And this is where a lot of critics like get so hung up on Elihu, like, oh, he's not giving us the whole picture here, so he can't be a good counselor. That, that's... That's the point. Elihu comes not knowing, not understanding the whole counsel of God, not knowing the why of Job's suffering, but he still gets what the other three comforters totally deny. Elihu still gets what Job is neglecting and denying, that God is at work in Job's suffering, working love and grace in Job's life. Job has been in the dark, and here Elihu is bringing the first light of day. So now it's right, it's proper to ask angrily if you want to, uh, okay, how does suffering help anyone? Because in the world and in the church, there are a lot of people who are doing, they're doing great, they're super successful. Uh, And because they're successful, they think they are, therefore I am good with God. Everything is going right. I'm good with God. When actually, in reality, they're doing just fine without God. When everything is good, ask yourself, why do you need God? When everything is good, we live like we don't need God. You only see, you only feel that life is cursed when you see that life is broken when you see and when you feel pain and loss and loneliness. And when you experience suffering in its millions of manifestations, you wake up and you realize this life, this life is broken. This life is messed up. This world is not my home. This life cannot be the end. It cannot fulfill. So it's strange. It's counterintuitive. It is maddening. But the Bible tells us that suffering is a means of grace. You may have heard uh, of these things in church called means of grace. You could also call them means of faith. God's word, the Bible. The Bible strengthens our faith, so it's a means of faith. It's a means of grace to strengthen our faith. The sacraments, baptism, communion, prayer, fellowship with other Christians. Those are means of grace. And suffering. Suffering is a means of grace 
that God uses to strengthen our faith in him and draw us closer to him. So here's Elihu explaining what none of the other comforters said, that Job's suffering in part, it is a means of grace intended to draw Job closer and closer to God in dependence. And for Elihu, this, this is the key for Elihu to the unpredictability of suffering. This is Elihu taking the sting out of the mystery of suffering. You know, the, the mystery of the suffering of the righteous and, and the prosperity of the wicked. That earthly suffering is a means of grace toward God's people that warns them away from eternal suffering to come, to look with hope to the only answer that there is to evil and suffering. So here's another, so what? This gives you license to grieve. You get to be sad. You get to be mad over the hard stuff that you see and experience in the world. Elihu is not, he is, Elihu isn't mad that Job is sad or that Job is mad. Elihu's mad that Job is spurning and he's denying this means of grace from God who loves him, that he's turning away from God instead of turning to him. And this is crazy because here in Houston, you know, you've got the secular and you've got the religious parts of the city that are uber success driven, telling you that you've got to have it all together. And if you don't have it all together, act like you have it all together. There go the Joneses, keep up. The religious spin uh, sounds like this. Uh, look at us. Look how much we have it together in life. Our awesome lives are evidences that Jesus is alive in us, that he loves us. And the crazy thing we're saying is that you don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty over being sad. Uh, you don't have to be ashamed that you're not that bubbly, smiling Christian 24-7, 365. The faulty premise, the faulty premise that we're dealing with, especially in a city like Houston, is that God does not want you to suffer. That, that thing of God does not want you to suffer, that's not an absolute statement. That's an ultimate statement that will be true ultimately in the new heavens and in the new earth. But we've got to see that the Bible is plainly saying about where we are right now, God does want you to suffer in this life because suffering is a means of grace. And you don't have to like that. I don't like that. Do you go looking for suffering? Nope. Uh, is it okay to avoid suffering? Yes. When you can avoid it faithfully, safely, wisely. And yet, God does bring suffering directly and indirectly into your life that you can't avoid. And you need to know that he is at work in you in that suffering, loving you. What Elihu shows us in the book of Job is this, it's, it's that God is not, because remember the big, big point of Job, but what Elihu shows us here is that God is not just testing Job, but he's growing him. That God is not just, he's not just winning a challenge against Satan, but he is loving his servant Job. God is not just proving that the gospel of grace is true. He is, and as he is proving it, he is working that grace out in this conflict. 
through the means of suffering that his opponent brings. It's crazy. I mean, this is the glory. This is the glorious irony of the gospel that God takes the weapon of the enemy out of his hands and turns it against him. And this isn't just the enemy like falling into his own trap, like setting a trap and then finding out that you've been set up the whole time. Uh, this, is, this is setting a trap. Then you find out you've been set up the whole time and then you fall into your own trap. This is like this. In The Princess Bride, uh, uh, Princess Buttercup has been kidnapped by three outlaws, a rather short Sicilian boss named Vicini, a giant from Greenland named Fezzik, and a Spanish fencing master named Inigo Montoya who seeks revenge against the six-fingered man who killed his father. These outlaws realize after they have kidnapped Princess Buttercup that they're being pursued by a masked man in black. The man in black catches up to the outlaws at the top of the cliffs of insanity. That, I mean, come on, does this not make you want to go home and watch Princess Buttercup? Princess Bride. Okay, the man in black, first, first he defeats, uh, sorry, if you've not seen it, Still, the man in black defeats Inigo in a duel and knocks him unconscious. Then he beats Fezzik in a wrestling match and knocks him unconscious. And then he confronts and he challenges Vicini, the boss, to a battle of the wits for the princess to the death. And Vicini, he's already compared himself to the sorts of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, who he considers to be morons. And he readily accepts the challenge, and the man in black then shows Vicini that he is carrying with him uh, Iocane powder. It's among the more deadly poisons known to man. And Vicini watches as the man in black turns. Uh, he takes the two wine goblets, he turns, and then he turns back, uh, switching the goblets around like this, and then dropping the vial of, uh, the empty vial of Iocane powder. And the challenge is thrown down. The man in black explains, all right, where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. And Vicini then goes back and forth, display, displaying his powers of logic, deducing this and that about the man in black, all the while saying, this is where the poison is. And then he tricks the man in black to turning around, and then he switches the goblets one last time, uh, and, and then he proposes that they each drink from the, from the cup in front of them. And they do. And the man in black looks at him, laughs, and says, you guessed wrong. And then Vicini, smirking, goes off, you only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses while your back was turned. Ha ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous, most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly well, less well known is this. Never, against, never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line and he just starts like, he can't contain himself. <laughs> and then falls over dead. Uh, Princess Buttercup is relieved. He can't believe, she can't believe that Vicini got it wrong. And the man in black explains about the cups of wine. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up to an immunity to Iocane powder. His, his, the scene he thought he was trapping the man in black the whole time with his weapons of supreme intelligence and logic and deception and reality. The whole thing was a trap. The whole thing was a trap set up by the man in black who used the enemy's weapons against him. Boom! I, Elihu points Job back to the gospel. 
the promise, these promises of grace given right after the fall, that his Savior to come would suffer at the hand of the enemy, and in that suffering would totally crush the serpent devil. And even up, even up to the fulfillment of this promise of grace, with Jesus on the cross, the devil thinks he has won. And what the devil cannot see is that on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, and he takes our death, and he takes our hell for us in her place. Jesus takes the weapon of Satan right out of his hands and uses it against him to save us and crush him. That ancient curse pronounced against Satan in the garden right after the fall— that promise of grace is in the process right here with Job. It is in the process of unstoppable fulfillment. So yeah, yeah, yes. Mankind in its, is in this covenant of death with the devil right after the fall. And out of that mankind, God is reconciling himself to a new mankind. And we are called, this new mankind, us, God's people, we are called to engage in holy war against the devil by holding on to and holding out this gospel promise, knowing that we are promised in that warfare ultimate, absolute triumph. There's a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer. He lost everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. And two years later, he lost all his possessions. And then two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and their four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic to England for a trip. And the, the ship crashed into another ship. And while it was going down, Anna prayed. Anna prayed with her daughters. And when the ship, ship sank, Anna was separated from the four girls. And they were never seen again. And Anna was found floating, unconscious, by a rescue boat, and they took her to England, and she sent a message to her husband who had heard of the disaster, and then all the message read was, saved alone. And when Horatio Spafford was on his way to England to bring his wife home, he wrote a hymn, and we're going to sing this hymn at the end of the worship service today. He wrote this hymn called, It Is Well With My Soul. And you have to ask how why would a man dealing with his grief, seeking, seek God, write a hymn about sin and Jesus saying, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What does that have to do with his tragedy? everything. The Jews thought the gospel was offensive. The Greeks thought the gospel was foolishness. Modern people today think it's all of that, offensive, foolish. It's scientifically impossible. Gods do not take on flesh and then die. Postmoderns today think that the gospel is exclusive. It is too sad. It is too hard. It is too violent. It is too embarrassing. It is too disgraceful. The question to you is, what will you believe? Like, will you believe this gospel, which is the only answer to evil and suffering? When things, when things go wrong and we get scared and we think, maybe I'm being punished. No. You look at the cross. 
You repent and you look to Jesus. When we get scared uh, and we think maybe God doesn't care about me, no, we look at the cross, the one who took not only punishment for us, but we look to the lengths that he went to in order to do it for us. He would never leave you now. Job thinks he wants to stand before God for judgment by himself. Elihu lovingly corrects him. No, you don't, not by yourself. So the good news of the cross is not you have nothing to fear because you are not going to go through final judgment. That is not, no, the good news is actually by faith in Jesus, you have already gone through final judgment with Jesus. Your God is not mad at you. You need to know that he loves you. You need to be assured that he loves you and he is coming for you. Here's Horatio Spafford thinking through who his God is, who his Savior is, who he is, his daughter's faith, who they are, his wife, her faith, and he's strengthened in the midst of that conflict of life to the point of praise. And here's Elihu at the end, and he's pleading with Job to remember the exalted power and love and work of God and to trust this suffering as a means of grace. That his complaining would be transformed into praising. And then that's what Elihu does. Right at the end, Elihu takes his own counsel and thinking on the Lord of creation, he breaks into song. And he breaks into the praise of the incomprehensibility and awesomeness of God and his work. His sovereign control of all the elemental forces from evaporation to precipitation to frost, frosty winters, ice and snow to majestic thunderstorms, every atmospheric phenomenon absolutely having to answer to God's bidding, it must also be true of evil and suffering. And Elihu's challenge, it subdues the princely arrogance of Job, but Job is, we're left on this cliffhanger because Job is not yet repenting. He's still resisting. And so what we see here at the end of chapter 37 is the scene is getting darker and darker and darker. And what we don't realize as the reader is that what Elihu, until you get to chapter 38, what Elihu is describing vividly is inspired by what, he, by what he is actually seeing. It's inspired by what he is actually witnessing, and he is pointing it out to Job. You realize uh, that there are dark clouds gathering, and in the distance a storm is approaching. And then you realize that Elihu is just the forerunner, like John the Baptist, the one sent before to prepare the way of the Lord. And the approaching storm, it is the Lord who is coming in the whirlwind and he's coming to challenge Job himself. Let's pray. Father, we praise, we praise you. Wherever we are right now, we, we praise you knowing that whatever you are doing in our lives, even the hard, even the stuff we don't understand, that it is for our good. And so we praise you as our God of grace. We praise you as the one who loves us, even if we don't understand it, that you're bigger than we are and that we are called rightly to fear you, trust you, be in awe of you. Pray that you would turn us to the cross Pray that you would turn us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing 
that his life, his death, his resurrection for us, you are at work. Suffering is not the end, even though it is incomprehensible ultimately to us. It is not to you. We pray that you would surround us with these means of grace. Get us in your word, prayer, fellowship. Keep bringing us back here to be around each other in worship and praise of your son in order that you would preserve us until you come back or until you call us home. Help us to trust that in this ultimate conflict, you have won, and because you have won, we have won. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.